Hi, everyone. Welcome to Orthopod. My name is Mo Bandari. I'm editor-in-chief of OrthoEvidence. And I have today a friend and colleague, a guest, uh, Dr. Danny Gold. Dr. Danny Gold is an orthopedic surgeon um, from the University of British Columbia uh, with a specialty interest in shoulder surgery. Now, he also is CEO of Precision OS. We'll hear a little bit more about that, I'm sure. Uh, and most recently, he has an MBA from the Rotman School of Management. Lots of accolades there, Danny. So uh, welcome. Thank you for that uh, warm welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to be here today. Let's speak a little bit about the things that you've been focusing on in the last little while. Well, I would say it's it's probably been the last few years. Uh, you okay. know, it, it's really been a question of how do we as surgeons get better uh, over time? And what are the mechanisms and the models we use to improve our skill set? And that's really been the focus of my mind share over the last three years, or probably more than that, probably four years. And so that's sort of driven into where my current position is now with uh, this software company. Right. So when you talk about um, broadly, how does we learn? So what are the ways in which um, you think traditionally have been effective? And where do you think the future is going to take us? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I, as, as I div, dive more into this sort of discussion, I realize how little I know about how we learn. And one of the things that really struck me is there's different models of how we learn. You know, there's this, this visual way, there's an auditory way, uh, you know, there's reading and writing, and then there's this kinesthetic way, which we don't really talk much about in surgery. But, you know, Fleming refers to this as VARC, the VARC phenomenon and how people learn. And so, you know, trying to think about all these different models of how we learn in orthopedics being a lecture, you know, you watch someone operate, you watch a video of someone operate, and then you do something with your hands. All those things try to embody, you know, Fleming's philosophy, but we don't really know which one is the most effective in making our experience such that we provide a really good procedure to our patients. So that's the kind of thing that I've been sort of dabbling in the last several years. And that's this part that really interests me in which one of those is actually the most impactful and how do we change that as we move forward? Well, I would imagine that the last, well, four or five months have completely accelerated various aspects. I mean, the one thing we hear about all the time now is how do we function in an environment where we're not always going to be face-to-face -face with individuals or we're not going to have access, you know, to patients in the same way we did for education purposes, just because we're in a, you know, in a physical distancing environment. This yeah. is likely going to go on probably for the next 12 months. I, I'd be shocked if it doesn't, um, knowing right. everything we're seeing with waves. How do you think education has adapted to that? And how quickly do you think, uh, how, how well have we done in doing so? Yeah, so this sort of, you know, forced reflection, I don't think we've, we haven't had an opportunity to really do much in this space. I know everybody sort of pivoted into Zoom calls and webinars right. to see if we can promote education that way. But there's a huge aspect of this, which is that hands-on kinesthetic part, which we've, which has essentially stopped. And, you know, if we, we've stopped elective surgery, which has stopped on our patients, and we haven't traveled to do courses with cadavers or sawbones. So there's a big gap in there and that we haven't really addressed with respect to education. That compounded by the fact that we're not operating. So there is this, this element of skill decay that we haven't really talked about in orthopedics. It exists in other industries like sports. Uh, but what, how does that impact our ability to, again, regain our learning curve that we've spent perhaps years or months establishing prior to the pandemic? So I would imagine the gold standard or the criterion standard, as we'd say for validating anything we're going to do, goes back to, you know, sort of the face-to-face -face interaction, you know, 
involved, if it's healthcare, involved with the patient in the patient interaction. Yeah. Would that be a reasonable assumption of the criterion standard? So what is the criterion standard for getting somebody or, or teaching and learning in surgery? It would be in front of the patient or in the operating room doing the procedure with a mentor or a skilled instructor or consultant, something like that. Would that be a fair criterion? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, sort of comment. And I would say that if you're the individual surgeon in front of the patient, going from end to end, from interaction all the way to the completion of the procedure, then yes. But for a learner who's shadowing or learning and they get a fragmented experience, how does that accumulate over time for that individual learner? So I would say the surgeon is maximizing their experience over time, but the resident who's sort of sitting on your shoulder or shadowing your experience, how is their learning advancing? That's the question that we don't know the answer to, but that's the model that we currently live in for education. Yeah, 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 right, right. So, but I mean, if you're developing, okay, so maybe we can speak a little bit about what are some of the alternatives. So yeah. if you can't maximize um, the time you're going to be seeing the patient end to end, right. but, but that time is critically important because at the end of yeah. the day, everything you're doing is gonna be for that, for that eventual you know, work, you know, sort of workflow. Sure. Um, what have been what have, what's been proposed um, in terms of current models of educating, and then what are some of the I guess, and then we can get into the deeper you know deeper yeah. aspects of how it works. But I presume again, when you're validating, or presume you're trying to validate against some standard because we have right. to say, okay, well, how do we know? And so the standard I assume is just that is that is that is trying to get to that or trying to mimic yeah. that to the extent that we can. Yeah, our current sort of surrogate of that model is to practice on cadavers, as an example, or right. do a sawbone. And but as far as I know, there's been no good literature to say that you operate on a sawbone or a cadaver and you will have increased experience or better experience or a similar experience to what you would see in the operating room. Right, so right. There, there's a there's a disconnect there. Right. Well, I mean, but if you look at almost every resident has, has, has experienced, you know, one of those things, or even surgeons, right? You know, you want to go, oh, you'll go to a company X, Y, or Z, yeah. attend some sort of session uh, with some expert who's going to walk you through a procedure and you'll be doing it yeah. on basically using instruments, right? That's about it uh, right. in a very artificial environment, but that is yeah. the kind of the way most have, have functioned. And then it was about, as I recall things have changed a little bit but was about getting hundreds and hundreds mm. of hours a week right in the OR or yeah. in front of patients not yeah. what it was right so I presume everything is now saying well we're not getting hundreds and hundreds of hours for a variety of reasons many are right. important for personal right. well-being and health and yeah. all that stuff so what has taken the space of that so one of it is still the sawbones some of yeah. it is this virtual that we're doing yeah and then I presume your 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 fundamental interest is being um, virtual reality, and maybe we can yeah. speak a little bit about um, that as, an, as another alternative and where you see it fit in. Yeah, so that's a very good question. I would say that if we, if we look at the patient, when we operate in the patient or see a patient, we're usually dealing with an abnormal situation. So I'll use a hip, for example. Sure. The hip is arthritic, but when you practice doing a shoulder or a hip replacement, a cadaver, you're operating on a normal specimen. And so I think where software can actually have a role is we're actually, we can introduce an abnormal situation in a software environment or a digital environment and have you go through the process of obviously learning the instrumentation, but then adapting the instrumentation to the pathology that you would see in the digital space. Whereas in a cadaver, you're not really adapting your tools for that abnormal situation. You're putting it in a normal situation. So that's where I see how software can actually give you that volume. And, you know, 
I think the discussion about volume making you a better surgeon is somewhat superficial because it's the variation in that volume that a surgeon sees over their career that makes he or she actually much better at what they do. Because each of those nuances become part of their subconscious. And then when they see that same pathology moving forward, it just becomes a natural idea in their mind where they just flow through that procedure seamlessly. So that's the part that I think is really interesting. Right. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Because I mean, the, the argument you're saying is, you know, I'll, I'll put it in simpler terms, which is, you know, a trainee who only sees a primary total knee replacement go well every single time yes. could have done several thousand of them, but doesn't yeah. prepare that trainee for the reality of practice in which there may be much more variety and much more. And that doesn't, it happens rarely, but that would be an extreme right. situation. Um, yeah. Where else, where else has simulation um, done very well? And I, I mean, it, it, I, I think very heavily about, you know, sort of the simulation and flight simulators, for example, as an example of where, you know, it's been critical, it's been, been life-saving. It's, it's a training yeah. tool, it's mandatory. What yeah. other areas of simulation you know, been highly successful. And I guess I'm getting back to you and then how did it, wh what were, what was the historical context of simulation then entering um, the surgical realm? Yeah, I mean, it's all been mannequin based, you know, and I think it really started in non-surgical specialties. True simulation, I would say, with mannequins, when you start talking about like intensive care and those sort of more advanced uh, simulation mannequins that are, you know, embodied with plastic models, that's probably where it started in healthcare. But the digital part of it hasn't really come to surface until now because of sort of Moore's sort of innovation where, you know, the transistor capacity has been doubling into this inflection of healthcare. So only now are we seeing how the digital software element can actually contribute to healthcare simulation as we've relied on mannequin-based simulation historically in healthcare. So what metrics then are you using right now as you're testing, um, you know, sort of the, sort of the breadth an opportunity of virtual uh, simulation, so to speak, or simulation approaches for education. And, and we'll, let's say orthopedics, for, for example, I know you're going to be outside yeah. orthopedics, but let's stay in orthopedics. Sure. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, there's two things. So there's the technical aspect. And if I use a shoulder, for an example, sure. and you have an abnormal erosion of the glenoid and you put the guide pin in when you're doing a reverse arthroplasty, that guide pin position is the most important part of that case. And the details we'll give you of that case is what's the version, what's the tilt, uh, and the angle of that guide pin. Whereas when you do it in a cadaver, you get none of that. Okay. The other thing we can measure is the delay in time between one step to the other. And that delay in time is actually quite interesting because it actually can give you an assessment of your decision making. So there's a delay in what you do from one step to the other. And there's been some good literature to support that that actually can manifest as your inability to make a decision. So there's implant metrics and there's technical metrics as related to uh, your performance using that implant in that different pathology. So when you look at, and maybe this is, I'm asking you questions now that probably we don't have the answers to, but yeah. um, when you start thinking about positioning, right? Because the truth of anything is any new technology, there's going to be a lot of interest early on. There's going to be a lot of early adopters and there's going to be a lot of excitement about whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And in that early phase, you're trying to sort out a bunch of things. And one big question is going to be, um, you know, ultimately, where is this, where is this going to find its place? And so it's not going to replace the current criterion. Yeah. Um, it's not on, you know, it's not on either extreme. It's, it's finding that, that specific spot. And maybe it's in remediation. Maybe it's in, in preemptive, you know, maybe it's yeah. in trying to prevent, you know. So have you been thinking about 
uh, or do you have insights around what the optimal usage yeah. um, of uh, simulation would be in a typical orthopedic training program or, or yeah. within a surgeon's practice? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say that it's not meant, I think, at this stage to replace anything. What it can do, though, is augment the experience. So first of all, there should be no, there's never a thought in my mind that VR lives in a vacuum. It should be still associated with strong mentorship, reading, watching videos, doing cadaver experience, but then you add the digital experience in there with VR and it should augment your learning to actually push your thinking to a different level, perhaps. And I think that's where the impact really will be when we think of training programs, you know, anywhere in the world, is can we get you to a level that's outside of your residency year box? We put everybody in boxes, PGY1, PGY2. Let's get you to push and think a little bit bigger uh, with perhaps an other solution to augment your existing experience and training. So that gets back to my, I guess one of my earlier points is how do you, if, you're, if it is against the criterion of mm. making somebody better and saying you're functioning, who makes that assessment? I mean, ultimately, is it, you know, because you, as you know, assessments are so subjectively based. Yeah. No matter, yeah. and we're trying to objectify them by saying, hey, listen, you know, we're going to now grade our trainees on a series of steps, and each step is really important. Yeah. But we all know the reality is, is someone walks in, they do something. If you have a general perception this person is good, they're going to have the halo effect of all the things being checked very good. Right. How, how, like, how does someone know? And I guess I'm getting to, how do you test this? How do you test whether adding you know, VR to practice has actually augmented overall skill set or has accelerated their ability? What are the, I guess, the outcome measures that are of interest to you? I would and say that it's would probably, be compelling, I guess. Yeah. That would be compelling, I guess, to the community. I would say that it's probably the only way that we could technically assess objectively someone's ability to perform a procedure uh, in within appropriate objective metrics. So if right. someone places a guide pin in the femur for a total or for an intertroch fracture, you know, two anterior, two posterior, you can measure that now in millimeter. Whereas historically we rely and you know, orthopedics is very subjective. The x-ray looks very good. Right. You must have done a good job, but now we can quantify that. And I think that's where the assessment piece comes in to actually add this objective measurement to assessment. And I presume also so there's the art that, um, that people used to say, well, that person just looks like they know what they're doing. There's a certain flow to what yeah. they do. Um, and it was intuitive that, oh, their flow is, they seem to go from one to another. There doesn't seem to be big gaps. They're not hesitating. Yeah. Looks like you're capturing some of that, right? You're capturing this yeah. hesitation uh, in time flow, which probably has something to do with also improving through the, I guess, skill level and understanding yeah. of a particular procedure. Okay. So I mean, yeah. th those... Those seem to make a lot of intuitive sense as to how you do it. And, and the reason I say that is we have the same challenge, right? Um, when someone says, well, you know, if you provide evidence to surgeons, in theory, we would say, well, you know, evidence-driven surgeons are going to perform better. Evidence-based medicine in and of itself is a sure. good thing. Well, yes, it makes us feel good. Um, but the challenge is how do we demonstrate that individuals who use evidence on a regular basis does ebm lead to better outcomes and right. then it gets into the hard outcomes are, are your patients just healthier are your patients better yeah. there's it's such a multifactorial challenge i agree that it's it's almost an impossible study to conduct but more importantly mm -hmm. there's so many confounders i suspect that's going to be the same challenge that, that you'll that you'll be facing as you're trying to look at okay well you're bringing new innovation in 
intuitively when you're using it, think, oh, this totally makes sense. We should do yeah. it. Look at all the good things that are happening. And then there's going to be a group of laggards in the, yeah. you know, in, in the, in the adoption, I'm sure you're seeing them, yeah. um, who say, well, prove to me that my patients are better off. Prove to me that robots actually lead to better outcomes. And then that becomes this debate. Um, and I guess the question is, who is the, who is the burden of proof on? Is it, the, is it the burden of proof on the individuals who are the laggards yeah. or the naysayers to say, I will demonstrate it has no benefit, or is right. it ours to demonstrate that evidence actually helps? And I'm saying intuitively, because I, I, I think of so many parallels to what we think are obvious and intuitive reasons to adopt right. you know, basic things. Yeah. I think it has to, you know, we're an interesting uh, industry in healthcare because unlike the aviation industry, which has adopted simulation fully and entirely, right. and they, in their industry, you must practice simulation before you even fly a real plane. Whereas, you know, in medicine or in healthcare, and I'll obviously refer to orthopedic surgery, if a resident comes to the operating room or to the office, their expectation is that they will fly the plane regardless of simulation. So I think, you know, we have to, as stakeholders, faculty, boards of assessment, we have to say and change our thinking and say, people should do simulation in healthcare. I mean, if you can otherwise say that there's been a negative transfer of skill, I think that could be a good argument to say we should never do simulation. But if there's evidence to suggest the alternative, we should, from above, say, we want you to do simulation regardless of your PGY year before you go to the operating room and fly the plane, quote unquote, operate on the patient. Yeah, mixed and thought so, of two, mixed yeah, yeah. And I mean, could you even imagine simulation tools be used as rationale for deciding who might be more adept to a particular field than another? One of the big challenges always is, well, is someone suited to a field? Now, there's, yeah. there's, there's definitely a catch to that, but I'm curious what your initial thought is before <laughs> yeah. I have my follow-up. Yeah, so that's been a real interest as well. I mean, we we have a, a massive market of medical students and non-people in medicine who may be interested yeah. in the field, but they have no exposure to healthcare, what they see on videos. You know, and I'll use a sports example, Kobe Bryant, obviously, uh, you know, late Kobe Bryant, he was noticed at a young age because there was a metric behind what he was doing. He'd play basketball and score score hoops. And so if he was if he went down the traditional pathway, he may never have been the brilliance that he would have been in the NBA. But he went from high school to the MBA because of that identification of his skill set. So it's possible that there's a massive population of people there that may have some brilliance in orthopedics that we're just not capturing because they're not seeing that they're actually good at something that they may pursue in a pathway. So whether it be someone in medical school or non-medical school, they just don't have that exposure at all. And I guess the argument here would be is if someone demonstrates, like, you know, let's say if Everyone gets some sort of simulation test mm. of some sort. Yeah. Someone who scores off the charts as a medical student. I'll use medical student as an example. Sure. Could be resident, yeah. whatever. Somebody. You would say that's a that's that person has potential. We should be thinking differently about that individual and others. Now, someone does does poorly. Yeah. I would caution that you wouldn't necessarily discount them because my argument would be well. You know, if they have everything else, I mean, can you actually teach somebody the skill set if they're otherwise motivated and they just don't have it? And that becomes this larger issue is, you know, how do you train someone um, yeah. to go from average to good, from good to excellent, excellent to exceptional? Yeah. And are we weeding too many people out, um, you know, too early if we never give them a chance to actually try? 
Uh, yeah. and I don't know what the right answer there was. You must have thought about this. Yeah, that's a million dollar question, I would say. At least some, if someone's in a program now and they require remediation, we do, I think that VR or some type of simulation could actually provide a role for them to practice outside of the exposure they would get in their five years. Yeah. And at least that's a way that we can push them to say, you know, this is something that we offer and we could train and use to help remediate you. But now we don't have that capacity to do that. And I think that's an evolving discussion with the program directors I've spoken to in North America is how to best capture that and do that with our struggling residents as opposed to the ones that are excelling. And let me just ask one more question up, fairly directed, and maybe that I'll get you to kind of sum up what you think the future is. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, in your role, as I think you have a pretty good landscape idea of where things are going. Yeah. What for you right now do you perceive as the greatest challenge to education and specifically around teaching and learning? Yeah, I would say the the biggest challenge is, is, our, is our inability to recognize the fact that our current model is violating most principles of education. And when we look at that sort of holistically and say, are we doing what we're doing and promoting the best and creating the best product at the end of the day? And what else can we be doing to help supplement that when we look at the theories of education? I would say that's the biggest challenge right now in orthopedic surgery. And if we actually take that stance, pardon me, that's pardon to interrupt, but if you take that position and say, are we abiding by the rules of education, the principles of education, Compared to what we're doing now, what else do we need to do to help align ourselves with those models moving forward? Got it. And what are like? Where do you see now? If, if you now, it's a horrible question. But I'm going to ask you anyway. I'm going to put you in the spot because I, <laughs> okay. I hate getting asked this question. But, yeah, sure. But I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, yeah. When you look a year from now, two years yeah. from now, what do you envision? You know, where do you envision sort of the big? the big boom to be. Right now, everyone's talking, you know, virtual, virtual, virtual um, with Zoom and all the other things. We use Zoom as an example. But, you know, when things get back to steady state, at some point yeah. it will, what will have stuck? Yeah. So I think um, I think we're, we're creatures of habit. And I think, well, we're creatures of habit, depending on the delay that that habit sort of stopped and when it resumed again. So I would say that if you're asking me a year from now, what's gonna happen? I think these things like Zoom, telehealth, they'll be sticky because you know when I see a patient now on telehealth, they love it. I think when you talk about education, I think there'll be massive pockets of people who will adopt things like simulation. And what'll happen is they'll be noticing some observations that'll spread organically and perhaps quite precipitously in peripheral environments. That's what I see a year from now. Very good. Dr. Danny Gold, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time with us. Um, we're going to transcribe this podcast as well. So we'll have something called a perspective also taken from this. So we'll get a couple of, of opportunities for people to consume this information through different Great. channels. But uh, thank you very much. And we'll be looking forward. We'll be following what's happening in the area of education and more importantly, in the area of, of virtual reality. Thank you again.